0: Turn with me to Romans chapter 9, if you would, as we continue our series through the book of Romans. And uh, if you are you are new with us, what we do is we work our way through books of the Bible, kind of one book at a time, one section at a time, keeping the text in the context so that we don't make the Bible say something it was never intended to say, so that we don't impose our own thoughts or ideas onto the Word of God, but we actually hear the Lord speak through His Word. and. As you just saw, we had seven uh, babies and parents who participated in our parent-child dedication, uh, which is just awesome. I mean, that's so exciting to see. And then at the end of the service, we have five baptisms, so that'll be coming up in just a moment. So uh, we're in a, a shorter section of scripture today, uh, a little bit shorter, a sermon in light of what's going on today. Um, but what we're talking about today is really at the heart of the gospel. So I don't want you to to mistake brevity for, you know, insignificance or a a shorter passage or a shorter time in the Word for, um, you know, something being less important. Nothing could be more significant than what we're talking about today because, again, it's really at the heart uh, of the gospel. So uh, have you ever walked into a room and You've heard a fairly intense conversation taking place, and as much as you wanted to know what was going on on the other end of the phone, you, you couldn't really decipher because, of course, you only hear one side of it. Uh, my wife and daughter and I were traveling last weekend. We were gone Friday and Saturday to uh, uh, on a college visit just north of Pittsburgh. So we flew there on Friday, and then we actually flew back on Sunday morning. And we were in Chicago, the Chicago airport, about 8 a.m., and there was this guy who was pacing, it was, it was only eight, it was eight o'clock in the morning, um, and he was very loudly uh, talking on the phone to someone else, pa- pacing back and forth. Um, and I was trying hard to stay awake, but I couldn't help but listen. And there was a side of me that wanted to say to him, hey, can you put that on speakerphone so we can all hear what's going on? Because it was one of those type of conversations. But I really had no idea what was going on, you know, on the other end of the phone because I only heard the one side. And this is the way that it is, if you've ever uh, had such an experience. You know, you you don't know what questions are being asked. You don't know what insults are being hurled. You don't know what accusations are being made. And so we're only left to kind of guess as to uh, what is going on. Well, several of the letters of the New Testament were written by the Apostle Paul. And they were written to address... um, very specific questions that were asked of him. 1 Corinthians is a classic example. Paul spends considerable time in Corinth, and when he leaves, uh, he starts to get letters from the church that he uh, stayed at, and they're asking him questions, and then he will write letters in return, you know, answering those questions. Uh, We read things like, now for the matters you wrote about, and then Paul will answer their questions. Um, He would stay for a while, get to know people, plant churches, develop these leaders and, and Christians, and then he would respond later to their questions. Well, the book of Romans is different than that, in that the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the church at Rome, never having been there. Now, he wanted to go, and he'd heard great things about the church, but he didn't know these people personally. So when Paul writes the letter to the church at Rome, what we call Romans, he's actually anticipating their questions. So he writes with this beautiful argumentation, and and he writes you know, this, these glorious doctrines of the gospel and some hard things like we've been looked at looking at the past couple of weeks, and then he responds to the questions that he thinks they will have. Last week we saw that God is so glorious and powerful and sovereign that he has every right to save whom he wants to save, but he doesn't work the way that we think he would work. He doesn't save the people that we might expect him to save. And and I think we could even be so honest as to say, sometimes he saves people that we uh, would have written off. Case in point, last week, God's salvation, Paul says, he saves only a few of the Jewish people, despite the fact that they had all the privileges that we talked about that were available to them. But of course, Paul knows when he says this, that this will strike confusion, uh, frustration, maybe even anger in, his, in the Jewish recipients of this letter. The church at Rome was made up of Jews and Gentiles. And so Paul has an answer to what he expects to be uh, uh, one of their chief objections, and it gets to the very heart of the gospel. And in his answer, we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see the purpose of God's command. So what are all these commands in here for? Uh, we're going to see the inherent danger in God's commands. Oh, give me a moment, I'll unpack that in a few minutes. And then we're going to see the offensiveness of God's salvation. So, the purpose of God's commands, the inherent danger in God's commands, and the offensiveness of God's salvation. So, uh, Romans chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 30 through 33. Uh, so, let me just read the, uh, the, this passage in its entirety. Here reads the word of the Lord What shall we say then? And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Paul asks the question, what shall we say then? This is Paul's way of kind of landing the plane, uh, bringing to a close this particular stage of his argumentation. And what's he been arguing? Well, the case that he's been building, really the question that he's been answering is, why does God save some Jewish people? Why do some Jews receive Christ as Savior, but many don't? Now, Paul already answered that question very directly in the section we looked at last week, that just God's sovereign grace. But here what Paul does is, again, he puts the law of God in its rightful place. So what he'll say, and we've seen this throughout the book of Romans, that the problem is not the law of God, and by law, I'm just referring to all the commands of God. The problem is not the law of God. The problem is our sin-cursed hearts. And the problem with that is when we use the law in ways that it was not intended to be used. And he says that the, the, the Gentiles actually used God's law correctly, but he says, that, and he says that they did not pursue righteousness in verse 30. Now that's, that begs an interesting question. So what does it mean that the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness? And why in the world is that something that should be commended? Does it mean that the the Gentiles made no effort to be good people? Uh, Does it mean that the Gentiles, um, that they did all the bad stuff they wanted? No, there were plenty of Gentiles, and especially Gentile Christians, who were striving to live holy lives. In fact, uh, New Testament scholar Douglas Moo writes, Paul well knows that many Gentiles in his day were earnest and diligent in their pursuit of moral uprightness. So what's going on here? What does Paul mean when he says the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness? Well, he's, he's not saying that they did not strive to become good, righteous people. He's saying that they did not pursue what's called forensic righteousness or legal righteousness. In other words, they did not look at uh, their obedience as a way to gain a right standing with God. But instead, they looked to Jesus alone. So here's our first point this morning. The commands of God were not given to save, given to us to save us, but to reveal our sinfulness and point us to the Savior. I know a, a pastor, a friend of mine who planted a church in New York City, and he never, he's still there. He's at a, it's a small church. He never achieved kind of the, the fame or the notoriety of Tim Keller who planted somewhat near him, but he said when he first got there, the, the approach was just to walk the streets of New York, Manhattan, and he just would try to strike up conversations with people. And he would ask people, are you a Christian? He said most of the time, almost all the time, people would say, no, no, I'm not. And so he, his response would be, well, what is, what is Christianity in your estimation? I mean, what's it all about? And he said that almost invariably, Almost every time, when he would say, what is Christianity really about, the person on the other end would say, well, it's about living a good life and being a good person and, and going to church and trying to help other people. And he said, this was what he got all the time. It was almost always about morality. Again, being the best person that you can be. And he would actually stun them by saying, that's actually not at the heart of Christianity at all, although certainly you know, that's not a bad thing, to try to be a good person. But he would say Christianity is actually all about forgiveness, being reconciled to God by trusting in the One that God sent. For so many of us, we have the same understanding of Christianity that the New Yorkers that my friend encountered did. That, and that's really Christianity is just about morality. It's about being a good person. It's about being the very best person that we can be. But in verse 31, Paul says that the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, and yet they attained righteousness by faith. So in the middle of the first century, there was, I think, what you can very well call a revival that swept through the Greco-Roman world, and all kinds of Gentiles, which is non-Jews, actually put their faith in Christ. They turned from their sin, they put their faith in Jesus, and places like Rome, which was, a, you know, which was a place of moral bankruptcy, uh, political tension, there was a lot going on, and yet a lot of these Gentiles turned to faith in Christ, and even though the law had not been given to them, that is to say, they weren't the original recipients of the law, when they heard faithful Christian preaching, which is always, always contains law and gospel... They were pierced to the heart and became aware that they'd sinned against a holy God. And instead of trying to work their way to this God, instead of trying to clean up their lives or become better behaved, they instead repented and trusted in Jesus as the one who actually fulfilled the law in their place and died for their sins on the cross. So in the scriptures, we have hundreds of commands, right? And you can sure think of a bunch, right? From love your neighbor... Uh, flee youthful lusts. forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you, uh, be kind, uh, do not engage in profane or unwholesome talk. And, you know, we could go on and on. There are hundreds of these commands in the scripture. And these commands make up what we would call the moral law of God. Um, and Paul has said again throughout Romans that the problem is not the commands or the law, as we say, the law is for our benefit and flows from the character of God. The law is beautiful and good and holy and perfect. The problem is how the law is used. The Gentiles used the law it was the way it was intended. They didn't look at obedience to the commands of God as a way to get right with God. They allowed the law of God to crush them. And it drove them to faith in Jesus. And by faith, they were declared righteous. Now I wonder, how do you view the law. When you read the command, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength," what do you think? Do you think, well, I've, I've, if I could just do better at that, then I know God would be pleased with me. And when you read the command, you know, to forgive one another as God and Christ forgave us, do you think, well, if I could just become a more forgiving person, then surely God would receive me. Or when you read the command to be kind. You think, you know, if this this is one area, if I could just grow in this area, then surely God would accept me. If that's the way you're viewing the law, you're doing the same thing that the Jewish folks did that Paul actually corrects. You're looking at the law as a way to gain a right standing with God. And that's not ever going to work as we just read. Now look at verses 31 and 32 again. Paul says, But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. So so when the gospel brought that revival to the Greco-Roman world, and these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people were putting their faith in Christ What did most of the Jews do? Most of the Jewish people, actually, they decided to dig in their heels. They refused to believe in Jesus, that he was the one that God sent. They were looking for a Messiah, but they did not believe it was this Jesus. And instead, they determined even more passionately, even more fervently, to be better at keeping the law. Paul says in verse 31, they pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but they did not succeed. They thought that because they were so meticulous about their law-keeping that they were right with God. And Paul says that they failed fatally as a result because their partial obedience and their perceived moral superiority over the Gentiles had led them to believe that they were okay with God and they'd missed out on the one person that could save them, Jesus the Christ. Their destruction was not simply a result of their sin but their perceived righteousness. And this is not a tendency just of the ancient Jewish people, is it? This is our tendency as well to believe that there has to be something. There's got to be something we can do. There's got to be something I can do to make myself right with God. And here's why this is so dangerous. This is our second point. The greatest danger we face as Christians is not our sin but our law-keeping. Now, that may sound absolutely outrageous to you. Say, I've been in church for 50 years. I've never heard anything like this before at all. Well, please hear me. I'm not minimizing sin. Sin is a great danger. Sin does separate us from God. Sin is destructive. Sin is blinding. Unrepentant sin will absolutely destroy us. We've seen this in the early chapters of Romans. This is why a couple of weeks ago I quoted the Puritan John Owen who said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So yes, it's absolutely, I'm not minimizing sin at all. I'm not minimizing our selfishness, our rebellion, our disobedience. But a greater threat to our spiritual well-being is actually a confidence in ourselves. The subtle belief that I am right in God's eyes because of the stuff that I've done or what I've not done, or because, though we would never ever say this to anybody, but because I'm a better person than my neighbor, or that other person over there, or because I've been uh, obedient to the best of my ability. It's actually shocking in the Gospels how much Jesus actually rails against self-righteousness. You know, Jesus talks about self-righteousness more than any other sin. Uh, More than sexual sin, more than sin that we commit with our mouths, our our tongues, the things we say, Jesus goes on and on against self-righteousness. And in fact, the the main sort of, his main enemy, so to speak, in many of his debates uh, were the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And he goes on and on against self-righteousness because, not only because it's so destructive, but because it's one of those things that we don't, we don't think that we have. It's a sin we don't think we commit. We tend to think of our, uh, we have this list of what we believe are the worst sins, and those, of course, are the sins that somebody else commits. Um, but, you know, the, the, the great sin of self-righteousness, we, we don't really see ourselves being that way. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the Romans, shared repeatedly in his other letters that it wasn't sin that kept him away from Christ. It was his righteousness. I mean, he didn't feel like he needed a Messiah who would die on a cross because he felt like he'd been very obedient. He had his own righteousness. Now, he knew, of course, that sin was bad. He knew that coveting was bad. He knew that lusting was bad. He knew that adultery was wrong. What he had to discover by the work of the Holy Spirit was that his righteousness was also bad because that had become... His Savior. One pastor and theologian writes, the people who can be most blind to their need for Jesus are often the people sitting in church week after week. Jesus may be their hero, perhaps, perhaps their inspiration, but he's not yet their righteousness because they haven't yet given up clinging to their own righteousness. Now that's a scary thought, isn't it? that what may be most damning in our lives is our own self-righteousness, not the sin that we're ensnared in. And again, I'm not minimizing that at all. I'm not making light of any sin or any sin tendency. But I'm saying that this is a danger for believers to rest in their own righteousness. Uh, Because Janine and I have three kids in their early 20s. Occasionally, one of my kids' friends will reach out to me to help with his or her resume. And they'll, this happened a couple of months ago, send me a resume and say, hey, can you look at this? Not just for formatting, but, you know, for the content and organization and so on. And, um, and, and I don't mind doing it at all. It's, it's not that I'm, you know, a master at it, but they, they send it to me and I look at it and, and it's not unusual for me to say to them, okay, you've got to make yourself look better. I mean, with honesty and so on, you know, I'm not saying that you make anything up, but you've got to make yourself look better. You have to use active verbs. Don't talk about what you would do. Talk about what you've done. Talk about what you've accomplished. Well, that works maybe for getting a job, but this doesn't work in terms of creating some sort of spiritual resume. A spiritual resume is what we think we can give to God and And God will see that and he'll look over and say, okay, yeah, you're definitely, uh, I definitely want to keep you, definitely want to hold on to you. Uh, God calls every Christian to surrender everything that we might be inclined to put our trust in outside of Jesus. So anything you might think, if you were putting together a spiritual resume, what might you put on your spiritual resume? Maybe you put, I grew up in a Christian home, that's right there. You know, you got the top, you got your, your introduction, and then right there you got grew up in a Christian home. Maybe, maybe on your spiritual resume, you want to put all the ministries that you've served in. You say, I've, I've been a greeter, and I've been a small group leader, and, and I've helped with uh, communion, and I've done all these things, and you want that to be right at the top of your spiritual resume because you want that to be the first thing the Lord sees when your resume comes across, across his desk, so to speak. What is it that you might be inclined to put on your resume? What is that thing that, that helps you, when you look in the mirror, think that you're okay with God because of this? It's your go-to consolation when someone criticizes you. You say, well, yeah, well, at least I'm not blank. At least I've never been unfaithful to my spouse. At least I've never been addicted to drugs, at least I finished college, at least I've never violently assaulted anyone, at least I didn't vote for so-and-so, at least my kids are obedient unlike whoever else you have in your mind, at least I don't look at pornography. If any of those things are what you're holding on to, if that's your spiritual resume, God will take it and he'll rip it in half will absolutely shred it. It won't get you anywhere. See, the problem with the Israelites that Paul indicts here is not simply that they were trying to live good lives. No, they were pursuing the law, he says, as a means to God's righteousness. They were convinced if we can just do these things right. And of course they had not just laws, but they had all kinds of interpretations of laws. If we can just do all of these things, then surely God will receive us. Now, look at verse 33. Well, verse, The last part of verse 32, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Then as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So what Paul does here is he actually quotes from two different chapters in Isaiah, and they're actually separated by 30-plus by chapters. And what he does is, he, the first part of it is from Isaiah 8, and he says that God is laying a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. He will go on to explain in chapter 10, which we're not going to get to today, uh, that he's talking about Jesus. That's what he's talking about. And, of course, that shouldn't surprise us because throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, Christ is referred to as a stone of, the chief stone, the cornerstone, and so so on, which is a metaphor which is meant to convey, among other things, his strength, his value, his reliability, his stability. Just a moment. We're going to sing a few moments. We're going to sing the song, He Will Hold Me Fast. And and when we do that, we're confessing Christ's stability over and against our instability, Uh, his, his ability to hold us close, over and against our uh, tendency to to wander off. Um, So Christ is, again, Romans 10 and other places, he is the stone. That's what Paul's talking about. But what about the stone makes it a stumbling block? What is it about Jesus that trips people up, causes them to fall? Well, it's the reality that salvation is simply by believing and not by doing The message of the gospel is that Jesus has come as God in the flesh. He perfectly obeyed all of God's commands. He died a brutal death on the cross, a death of shame. In our place, as our substitute, he was raised again on the third day, according to the scriptures, as God's sort of uh, evidence that this is a, a sufficient sacrifice. The indication that God is indeed making all things new so that anyone who believes on him Anyone who trusts in him will be saved. But to the first century Jews who had the law, that just couldn't be right. That there's got to be more to it than this. There's got to be more than just believing on Jesus. There's got to be something that I contribute to this equation. And dare I say to us in the 21st century, we also say that just can't be right. There's got to be more to it than just believing on Christ. There's got to be something that I can do. There's got to be something that I can contribute. We just cannot accept forgiveness for free. This is what makes the gospel foolishness to the so-called wise and offense to the so-called righteous, a stumbling block to hardworking people like us. But unless we part with any notion of working our way to God, unless we dispense with any and every attempt to get there on our own, Jesus will always be to us the stone that trips us up and causes us to stumble. So here's what Paul's getting at. This is our final point. Believing in Jesus as our precious stone means building our lives on him by resting in him for everything. So believing in Jesus means realizing that I get my righteousness from him. Where I failed to keep God's law, Jesus succeeded perfectly. And Jesus has credited that perfect obedience to me by faith, which means that I don't have to constantly feel like I'm not doing enough, it doesn't mean that, it means that when I go to bed, I don't have to ask myself, have I done enough today? Have I been good enough today? Have I resisted temptation enough today? No, Christ is our righteousness. He is our righteousness, which means that he has done everything necessary for our forgiveness. It means that God will not condemn me when I trust in Christ. Jesus has done everything, clothed me with his righteousness, so I never again have to worry about how God views me even on my very worst days. I don't have to worry about how God views me because my righteousness has been given to me through Christ. Now, this is so encouraging, but it's also mind-boggling at the same time. This is why the great New Testament scholar Gerhard Ford writes, the gospel of justification by faith, that is to say salvation by believing, is such a shocker, such an explosion, Because it is is an absolutely unconditional promise. It is not an if-then kind of statement. If you do this, if you don't do that. But a because-therefore pronouncement. Because Jesus died and rose, your sins are forgiven and you are righteous in the sight of God. This is the case. This is true for everybody who's trusted in Christ. So believing in Jesus means... As the stone, I get my righteousness from him. Believing in Jesus means I get my forgiveness from him. Sometimes we think, you know, we've done something bad. And again, as I said in my intro, my my welcome time, you know, we've said something we know we shouldn't have said, and we've done something we really wish we wouldn't have done. We think, okay, I've got to make it up. I've got to make it up, which means I've got to have an especially good week this week. And then that's a bad week. And we just feel like we're in even greater debt than before. And we think, I've got to make up this ground. I have to make up for what I've done. And sometimes even before I come to God in worship or in prayer. But the truth is, because of Jesus' cross work, the benefit of which we receive by faith, God has once and forever put away our sins for those who believe. And he will never, ever hold them against us again. He's not waiting for that moment. Some of you may think he's waiting for that moment when you just absolutely blow it. And then he's going to say, yeah, you know what? Yeah, but remember all these other things you did. And remember when you said to me that you were sorry and you sought my forgiveness, and now here you are again. And some of you may think that God is just waiting to bring up again the sins in your past. But the beauty of the gospel is because of Jesus' work on the cross, that God has forever put our sins on Christ and his righteousness on us. And so now we're not enemies of God, we're not slaves, we're not rebels. We are actually friends and indeed children of God. Even if we've done something terrible, for the one millionth time, we can still go to him and our forgiveness is there. It's rooted and anchored in the stone who is Jesus. This is what Paul means when he says those who believe in him will never be put to shame. Doesn't mean if you're a Christian, you'll never be humiliated. Doesn't mean that no one will ever embarrass you again. Doesn't mean you'll you'll never have that moment where you're ashamed. This is talking about at the end times, in the future, the future judgment. Those who Believe in Christ will never be put to shame. He's not speaking psychologically, but eschatologically. In other words, he's not talking about how we might feel at any moment. He's talking about at the final judgment, the one who believes in Jesus has nothing to fear. There is no terror inducing judgment for those who are in Christ, only, as we just sang, loving acceptance. Believing in Jesus means also that I get my strength from him. I'm helpless on my own, but he is my rock that cannot be moved. So when this world throws these challenges at us and we grieve over what we're going through and we don't know where to turn, even in our darkest hours, he is the Savior who will move heaven and earth, so to speak, to keep us close to himself. Even in our driest times spiritually, He will make sure that we persevere. As Psalm 106 says, He opened the rock and water flowed out. It ran in the driest places like a river. The the tendency that we have, the tendency that I have, I know is to think, and I battle this every day, and not just once a day, is to think if I can just do better, Man, if I just wouldn't have said that one thing, if I could just not try to be funny here or not make that sarcastic comment or not say that impatient thing, if I could just do better, then God will be pleased with me. But the beauty of the gospel is that when God looks at those who are in Christ, he actually sees the righteousness of Jesus. And we're going to get into this next week in Romans 10, which is so, so beautiful, But what it means very specifically, again, for you today and for us is if you're in Christ, you belong to the Lord, and there's nothing that will ever change that. No scheme of hell, what is it? No something of hell, no scheme of man, right? We just sang about it. Uh, How does it go? No power of hell, no scheme of man, yes. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We've already seen that. And even if you're today, you're thinking, man, I've just had the worst week. If you're in Christ, you are deeply, deeply loved, and you belong to the King. Now, we're going to celebrate in just a minute five folks who have come to the the end of themselves, even at a young age for some of them, and they've come to the realization that uh, in Christ, I have forgiveness and new life. Let's pray.